You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is Father James Shaw, and I would like to do now the conclusion of At the Limits of Political Philosophy. We have seen the 12 chapters of the book. The basic argument has to do with the understanding of human condition, human errors, human problems, and the responses to it, both in reason and revelation, and also the responses from politics. But it is a treatise on political philosophy and the understanding of its place in the intellectual order. The conclusion is entitled To Those Who Study Politics, and it too begins with a quotation from Samuel Johnson from the Rambler um, on September 7, 1751, in which he said, The direction of Aristotle to those who study politics is first to examine and understand uh, what has been written by the ancients upon governing government, then to cast their eyes upon the world and consider by what uh, courses the prosperity of com- uh, communities is visibly influenced and why some were worse and others better administered. The same method must be pursued by him who hopes to become imminent in any other part of knowledge. The first task is to search books. The next is to contemplate nature. He must first possess himself of the intellectual treasures which the diligence of former ages has accumulated, and then endeavor to um, increase them by his own uh, collections. The end of the quote. This book is a discourse in political philosophy. It is addressed, in Johnson's words, to those who study politics. The The uniqueness of this discourse at the limits of political philosophy, its specific emphasis is found in the particular way that certain basic questions in political philosophy, questions uncommonly important uh, in the in themselves, lead to answers that are not specifically political. Strong souls recognize that such questions do exist even in ourselves. This higher side of political philosophy, both in academic courses and in the literature in the field, is frequently neglected or treated with a certain um, cautious embarrassment, if not methodological hostility. Yet such neglect of of the higher uh, philosophical reaches of political things uh, deprives and lessens us. It dispossesses 
of the of their rightful heritage those young potential philosophers to whom the highest things ought to be the most attractive it also frustrates those mature and even aging thinkers who still ponder the ultimate things mindful both of their dangers and of their fascination the argument presented in this book has treated these ultimate issues as proper and legitimate uh, concerns of political philosophy. The deepest disorders in human life arise initially in disagreements in the minds of the philosophers about the nature of what is. These disagreements seem like so many brilliant errors because they do strive to explain, however oddly, things that exist in ordinary human experience. Because they sense the danger in these errors without being able exactly to explain uh, why they are dangerous, many honest citizens and politicians hesitate to consider political philosophy's ultimate reach. Small errors they know with Aristotle do lead to great ones. Modern political philosophy is grounded in a curious intellectual toleration that attempts to tame or even to coerce uh, philosophies and philosophers and citizens who would uh, take the ideas about the limits of the discipline and of the politician most seriously. Such profound and radical differences among philosophers and believers it was feared in modern political philosophy would erupt in the public order uh, in the form of wars or strife or civil hostility. This eruption has no doubt happened, but in its reaction to the dangers of pursuing the highest things, modernity proposes a kind of weak-souled man whose highest ethical norm is self-preservation or gratification, a man who has somehow uh, inured himself against the lure of the highest things themselves. The result has produced a kind of uh, bravery against truth, against the argument that something, in fact, might be true and might be knowable, by the human mind, even amidst the multitude of brilliant errors. <clears throat> Yet the relativist principles on which this toleration is in modernity is argued left unfazed the annoying fact that certain issues had to be thought out, beginning with the issue of whether uh, relativism itself was true. The disturbing logical paradox that if relativism is true, it cannot, by its very fact, be true, goes unnoticed. In the pursuit of the truth, intellectual courage was required to affirm that the weak-souled solution of modern relativism was seriously flawed. A second, more ominous alternative uh, philosophy turned these unresolved questions about man's, about human meaning and intellectual relativism over to 
anti-rational or anti-religious forces such as fascism and positivism, Marxism, some forms of liberalism and deconstructivism. Such forces uh, presented themselves, however, as philosophically valid, as right ways to act and exist once granted that no truth existed. If truth did not exist, man evidently was free and obliged uh, to will some order into being from his own resources, if only for practical reasons. Political philosophy, in being true to its own questions, had a defensive purpose to protect openness to the truth of the higher things from dangers to it arising from within the polity itself. At the same time, it rejected the skeptical notions that nothing could be true or that any sort of uh, enthusiasm would fill the hearts of men. Aristotle put it very simply when he remarked in the sixth book of the Ethics that, quote, the work of both the intellectual part, theoretical and practical, then, is truth, end of the quote. The work of the intellect is truth. The truth is what is of the most uncommon importance to us in political philosophy itself. This truth is not fanatical, not outside our possibilities, not apart from our very lives. The heart of political philosophy is not betrayed when we acknowledge that the truth is what we are seeking in political philosophy. Political philosophy became, because of its knowledge of imperfect regimes, was interested in finding a polity, or at least an academy, in which it was legitimate to take the highest concerns with the greatest soberness and philosophical attention. The philosopher had both to inflame the souls of the youth uh, so that um, contemplation could be um, could begin and to moderate the passions of the uh, politician enough to let philosopher the philosopher exist. The politician, for his part, recognized that philosophy could drive some of its practitioners mad, that not all philosophers were wise or honest, and that philosophy did not or did itself uh, require some political judgment. This book is a guide through the classical topics and readings that initially established what are the issues that mankind cannot avoid thinking about because of its experience in civil life. Students are told that there are alternatives or substitutes uh, for the classic works in which these issues are uh, presented uh, most directly. Without denying the, uh, that good thinkers and books 
exist in many places and times. Some students remain foolish enough to believe this subtle doctrine of cultural relativism, relativism that the classic authors uh, do not retain an unqualified authority among us, an unequal authority among us. The soul, deprived of the best intellectual food, remains a dangerous thing. No doubt a certain faith is needed even to be reasonable, even to recognize that philosophers exist who have thoughts, have thought their way through the deepest of issues. A student from whatever background will not have read well until he has read and pondered the classical and revelational sources within which political philosophy arose in the first place. We can, to be sure, have answers before we have problems, but in the intellectual life, no answers are secure until we really know the questions to which they are designed to respond and clarify. The purpose of teaching political philosophy as such is to take the student through the classical text that establish the questions in our souls without neglecting, without would be dishonest, the answers that various political philosophers and even believers gave to these same questions. Political philosophy is likewise of great service to religion and theology. The religion and theology that most potential philosophers meet today is itself often filled with ideology, doubt, and confusion in its understanding of, of, of itself. Religion, during the last hundred years, has itself been surprisingly susceptible to ideology. I have argued that the that revelation, properly understood, directs itself to certain clearly articulated questions in political philosophy. Political philosophy, from its own reasoning, raises issues for which specific theological teaching, uh, such as the Trinity and the Incarnation, for example, provide accurate answers. Without political philosophy, the th theology is ungrounded uh, because it leads to a continued series of brilliant errors in uh, efforts to answer its own questions. Political philosophy is important for its capacity to keep the right questions uh, in the forefront of our thought. Those theological answers or interpretations that do not uh, maintain the essential revelational content turn out, in fact, on examination not to be answers to the questions argued and presented in political philosophy. In this sense, political philosophy is not, is itself a service to revelation, a service that keeps reason and revelation in some fundamental contact and keeps them in some the same world, in the same 
minds. To recall the introduction, introductory passage from Friedrich Wilhelmsen, this book is the text of a professor. Sometimes, no doubt, we ought to laugh at professors. Sometimes we ought to ignore them. And sometimes we ought to be frightened by them. But professors ought to tell us what they hold to be true, without neglecting to tell us why they have come to conclude this truth. What is presented here is not uh, conceived to be just one more academic opinion among a thousand other equally valuable, equally obscure, and equally indefensible opinions. Unless we are vain, stubborn, scatterbrained, or illogical, our discourse uh, should conclude to the truth about the thing and state it as true when known. Aristotle said that even the little truth that we know about the highest thing is worth all else that we know and that we should not doubt this. The argument, successfully or not, addressed itself to the truth of the issues arising uh, properly in political philosophy. The subject matter of this book, then, is political philosophy as it becomes more fully itself, that is, as it touches the whole uh, in which all being is articulated and uh, discreetly contained. Political philosophy begins not with um, minerals or with plants, not with the stars or the gods, though it is aware of them all. Rather, it begins with a certain uh, reality, the human reality, insofar as human reality um, does what is specific to itself. We are surprised to discover, however, that political philosophy, by being itself, is also a means to something higher. <clears throat> political philosophy provides the grounding for the higher things in this world. It provides a place where the highest things can take root in real human questions validly formulated and freely comprehended. We might initially have wondered uh, what death, friendship, virtue, salvation, law, hell, or eternal life had to do with politics. First we found with Samuel Johnson that those who were wisest uh, in this field saw fit to address themselves to these issues. Secondly, we discovered that the question did arise for our considerations either dramatically in the trials of Socrates and Christ or more prosaically in the discussions of Aristotle or more passionately in the writings of St. Augustine or more immediately from our own experience. A certain caution, a certain realism, even pessimism, inheres in these reflections. Politics, for all its dignity, must deal with the messes we make of human lives. The very subtitle of this book speaks of brilliant errors, as if we should know that there are errors and that they are in fact sometimes brilliant and that they compose a good part of the history of political philosophy. 
When Samuel Johnson spoke about the inseparable imperfections of all human government, he implied that wisdom in human affairs is not on the side of those who would tell us how to be perfect by our own endeavors. Political philosophy leads us to the paradoxical conclusion that the most dangerous people among us are most often those who look to government to perfect. But government does have a role in helping us to be virtuous, though the most dangerous one are those who look to the government to perfect us. The recent presumed death of socialism, one ill-starred form of this position of utopianism, has not discredited the perfectionist thesis. Recall Aristotle's statement, the epigram that began this book. We should not listen to those who tell us that politics is the most important affair. His admonition directs us to those dangerous philosophical, the dangerous philosophical fact about us, the most dangerous one, namely our capacity to choose with apparent reason against right order, beginning with the right order of our own souls. We can therefore choose philosophic rebellion as our response to existence. This rebellion can manifest itself in the withdrawal from this world, or contrary, it can seek to establish a perfect city in this world over against all actual cities. It can also express itself in a kind of Epicurean uh, moderation that fears any philosophical endeavor. Philosophers have chosen one or other of these, uh, these ways. But the inseparable imperfections remain. They continue to incite us to ask about the meaning of this human condition, of those very imperfections. We, are see, we have seen that in defending the imperfections, we have also been defending the possibility of there being such a being as man in the first place. It is a worthy defense. Some powerful thinkers, such as Machiavelli, have argued that these imperfections should themselves be the norm of our conduct. The believing realists, like St. Augustine or Burke, have rather argued that we should not lower our standards, even though we will not be completely good in this life. Aristotle and his followers, like St. Thomas, have maintained that there is such a thing as a human enterprise, something uh, to be done in this world that is valid, worthy, and significant, something not to be neglected. The political life leads to what Aristotle called leisure, a status in which further reflection is to take place about what we are and about what is true and about what, it, what makes us happy. Both the imperfections and the works of leisure lead to a surprising incompleteness in political philosophy. I do not mean to suggest that political philosophy is missing something, but rather 
that it leads by its very nature to something it itself is not. Socrates spoke to his friends about the immortality of the soul on his last day, while Aristotle doubted that we could be friends with God. The trials of Socrates and Christ elaborated but what is at stake, both in the politics of this world and in the transcendent meaning of man. The question asked at both trials must still be asked. This is why we read the accounts of these trials again and again, and why, if we do not, we miss the real part of political and human things. But the answers that are found in both trials remain fundamental. That it is never right to do evil in the case of Socrates, and that we are made for friendship with God in the case of Christ. Modern philosophy has sought to reclaim the notion of possible human perfection, either through technology or through ideology. Charles Taylor's account of the politics of recognition, um, authenticity, and dignity remind us of nothing so much as theological reflections on the nature of being and in the category of uh, relation in the Trinity, only now relocated in this world as if man were the highest being. The ancients and the medievals were accused of deflecting man from the true earthly task to talk uh, of philosophy and of the gods. This accusation Aristotle already uh, warned us not to listen to if we chose to be what we are, a choice that we had to make if we wanted to remain ourselves. The revelational tradition did not abandon the notion of perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But it did not locate it in the product as the product of man's own powers or as completely possible in this world. This conclusion that the ultimate terms of our perfection were not in our hands had the advantage of allowing imperfect men to acknowledge their imperfections without at the same time claiming the power of making what is evil to be good. It allowed them, in other words, to acknowledge evil as evil and good as good. It allowed them to live according to reality. This acknowledgement was the purpose of the intellect with which each person uh, was endowed as part of his very human being. The intellect, in other words, had its own integrity, its own purpose in reality. At the beginning of the royal societies in the 17th century, Europe, Samuel Johnson wrote to this point words that remain substantially true. Quote, when philosophers of the last age were first encouraged um, and congregated into the royal society, 
great expectations were raised of the uh, sudden progress of useful arts. The time was supposed uh, to be near when uh, engines could run by perpetual motion and health be secured by the universal medicine and when learning could be facilitated by a real character and uh, commerce extended to ships which could reach their ports in, uh, in defiance of all the tempests. But improvement is naturally slow. The society met and parted without any visible uh, diminution of the miseries of life. The gout and the stone were still painful. The ground that was not plowed brought no harvest. Neither oranges nor grapes would grow upon the hawthorn. At last, those who were disappointed began to be angry. Those likewise who hated innovation were glad to gain an opportunity of ridiculing uh, men who had uh, deprecated, perhaps with too much uh, arrogance, the knowledge of antiquity. And it appears from some of our earliest apologies that the philosophers left with great um, sensibility the unwelcome uh, importunities of those who were daily asking, "What have we? What have we done?" Let us emphasize this extraordinarily insightful remark of Johnson. Those philosophers who were disappointed began to be angry, he said. This anger, anger, that they began to be angry because their theories did not result as they hoped. This anger of the philosopher takes us to the heart of modern philosophy of modernity, to the desire of men to be responsible for the content of a uh, seemingly intractable world. It takes us to the refusal to accept the inevitable imperfections, not only of all human government, but of human life itself. The modernity that we confront in political philosophy uh, reminds us of nothing so much as the knowledge that was dangerously promised in Genesis. Eating the fruit uh, gave man, it was claimed, the divine power to form what was good to be uh, good and what was evil to be evil. Satan even told Eve in his famous um, account um, that if she should um, eat of the fruit, she would not die. Yet both classical philosophy and revelation address themselves to man's imperfections and to his uh, immortality. When oranges and grapes uh, subsequently became available by international commerce, and when gout was cured by a pill through universal medicine, and when ships found their ports in any sort of temper, the world still found itself 
by its own testimony to be miserable. Abundance, however, noble it might be, and it is an achievement, uh, did not calm the human soul. More and more, philosophy denied that there was a soul to be uh, to disquiet. The philosophers and the scientists even more frequently came to be asked by uh, worried mankind, what have you done? And they were not sure. It is not the argument here that no development in arts or sciences or even morals is possible. Rather, such development occurs, but it must not be confused with the ultimate destiny of each particular human being. Some significant light can be shed on our personal destiny as it relates to improvement, change, and even um, declines in arts and morals. The meaning of man as responsible agent in the world is that he should do something about the world itself in the process of doing something about himself, about his moral and transcendent purpose. The discourse on human virtue is a necessary discourse even for the world. Knowledge of the structure of the physical world and of the human world does not leave men, men themselves, unaffected. But men do not determine why the world or uh, what they themselves are as they are nor does scientific knowledge of the world um, substitute for investigations about the highest good. Philosophers may be angry that their uh, solutions neither work nor are, are the best that men might hope for. But we wonder if what is the best we might hope for can possibly exist. We think it unlikely on our own uh, terms. What does seem strange, however, is that when properly formulated, the essential outlines of what it is to be, what it is that we want, are described uh, as achievable. But this description exists in its fullness only in Revelation and there is, it is offered in a way that we ourselves would never have uh, conceived or ch chosen. Political philosophy does not argue that revelation is philosophically necessary. What it does suggest, however, from its own point of view, is that what philosophy would want, if it could have it, is found in the terms in which revelation pictures human life at its completion. We will not understand revelation if we do not understand political philosophy, if we do not understand ourselves. Revelation does not substitute for philosophy. Strictly speaking, the two uh, do not stand in opposition to each other. Revelation is not unreasonable. Indeed, Revelation seeks 
seeks reason in its own terms. The position that re religion is but a substitute for the masses for what the philosophers know in his dialogue uh, does not confront the real claim of revelation. <clears throat> but revelation must be itself. Theology has itself spoken uh, with very confused words in modern times, usually in imitation of modern theories, so that its real con content is obscured or uh, effectively denied. Revelation, true to itself, faithfully handed down, however, does not make any theoretical sense until the questions uh, to which it responds are first asked in the souls of those that study politics. When these questions are finally formulated over a reading of Plato, perhaps, or over a lifetime of suffering, or over living an unjust, in an unjust regime, or even uh, over a moment of intense joy, reason can see that revelational answers are likely and, in fact, directed to these questions. These answers from revelation, on the basis of what is asked in political philosophy, do make a curious sense. They make sense in the terms of the question found in human life as uh, elaborated in the books of the philosophers and in the experience of actual politicians. Questions of death and friendship, of love and evil. Revelation is not a uh, conclusion of human reason. It is, if it were, we would already be gods. Revelation is not contradictory to reason, for if it were, we could not, we could in no way believe it. Belief itself must be consistent with what is at least possible and thinkable. That proposition itself, that faith cannot contradict reason, is a tenet of faith as well as uh, grounded in a first or self-evident principle of reason. Discourse in political philosophy is successful if we realize that such questions which have been asked uh, by the great thinkers are also our questions. In some sense, revelation implies that the distance between the philosopher and the ordinary man is not so great as it appears in philosophy alone. Such questions unavoidably arise in our souls because we are what we are. Only on this point can we uh, seriously ask what sorts of answers have been given uh, to such questions. If we are free, we will be ready uh, to consider those answers that are in fact responses to these questions as they are asked by the philosophers and by the politicians and by ourselves. Indeed, it is right, in conclusion, 
to consider political philosophy as a doctrine that claims to be true. When we so consider it, we will see that the brilliant errors that constitute the history of political philosophy are themselves efforts to answer the same question that we find also treated in Revelation. Political philosophy is, is no mean enterprise when it endeavors to grasp intellectually uh, that perhaps there are not two worlds but one, and in that one world answers are given in Revelation to questions properly formulated in political philosophy at its best. When we finally take our stand here, we can see that political philosophy itself has led us by its own inner, inner energy and logic uh, to look beyond its limits. We too have wondered about the confines and contours of our full lives. We have been concerned about those actual experiences that awaken in our souls questions about the highest things. We realize in political philosophy that we are not being we are not beings who question for the sake of questioning, but beings who want and who expect to find answers that are true. We do not think we are beings created in vain, beings with no meaning. The thesis of this book is that a coherent relationship between what we are and what we would have uh, what we would have if we thought about it does exist such is our very nature that we can refuse even to think about this curious correlation even when it is pl plausible the dignity of political philosophy is to be measured primarily in the service it can give to those the highest and most surprising of endeavors to which the being who is naturally political can be led by his encounters with what is. In the end, we need not be disappointed philosophers who become intellectually angry because we could not explain the world in our own terms. Above all, political philosophy rightly openly considered, I think, is not a sign of disappointment, but a hint of glory. The end of the book. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.